Let's stand together as we come now to the Bible. It's Revelation uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Let's pray as we come to the Word of God. Father, would you help us to hear what it is that the Spirit says to the churches? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Revelation chapter 2, and beginning at verse 12, and I'll read to verse 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white Stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Do please sit down. Cry havoc and let loose the dogs of war. That's how William Shakespeare uh, described the warmongering spirit that uh, occasionally captures people and societies uh, in uh, his play, Julius Caesar. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. Well, the sword, though, of uh, our passage this morning is not that kind of sword. Uh, This sword describes uh, the sword belonging to Jesus and coming out of his mouth. It's not the sword of military action or judicial sentence, but rather the spiritual sword of the word of God. Now, of course, there is war imagery that is undoubtedly present in our passage, but it is a spiritual war. The sword of Jesus that comes out of his mouth, the That sword, which actually in the original is a precise technical word for a certain kind of of sword. They had a range of options in those days. That sword is juxtaposed to the Roman military and judicial 
regime which uh, had its center in Pergamum in Asia. See, Pergamum was where Satan had his throne. Now, there were many reasons why that phrase would have naturally alluded to Pergamum for the Christians in Asia at the time. First and foremost, because Pergamum was the religious capital of Roman emperor worship in Asia. It was, therefore, grandiloquently the throne of Satan. That is the place where worship of a mere human had been transposed from the worship rightfully due to God alone. There are other allusions, though, that would have uh, sprung to mind uh, to the original hearers when they first heard this letter read to them in Pergamum. You see, for a traveler coming on the ancient road from Smyrna to Pergamum, the route that most likely this letter uh, first went when it came to Pergamon, the traveler came down this route. Uh, as a traveler came down that ancient road from Smyrna to Pergamon, the citadel city of Pergamon looked unnervingly like a throne perched on a hill. What's more, the particular god of Pergamon, the Pergamon god it was called, had as its symbol the serpent, which of course for Christians steeped in scripture would have immediately brought to mind Satan. Pergamum was a religious center not only for Roman emperor worship, but also for this Pergamum god with its symbol of the serpent and for Zeus and other pagan gods as well. Now it was a great and beautiful city. Some think it was the Roman capital of Asia, though that's not certain. It, it was definitely the religious Roman capital. And at the time, those two often went hand in hand for the religious uh, sort of acted as a, a force of unity politically too. And most remarkable of all was the apex of the city, which had a cluster of temples to pagan gods all sort of gathered together. It was also a city of great learning. One of the most famous physicians in the ancient world, a chap called uh, Galen, whose writings were still read in the Middle Ages in, in, in Europe and indeed up until the 19th century. And in fact, one of his ideas is still accepted by modern medical science. But one of the most famous physicians in the ancient world had his abode in Pergamum. It was a center of learning. It, its library was second only to the library of uh, uh, famed at Alexandria. At least that is until Mark Antony stole some 200,000 volumes and gave them as a present to Cleopatra. <laughs> I suppose uh, it was, you, you might say, a sort of pagan religious center meets intellectual center meets political Center, a kind of, you know, pagan Wheaton meets Harvard meets Washington, D.C., if you like. 
the financial capital of Asia was certainly Ephesus, the sort of Wall Street or New York. The religious capital was uh, definitely Pergamum as the intellectual and perhaps the political as well by this, by this time, a sort of pagan Wheaton meets Harvard meets D.C., if you like. Why such a tone of war from the lips of Jesus in this letter to this place? For it is clearly there. Because the satanic power at work in Pergamon, the throne of Satan, that satanic power had begun the unnerving process of subverting the otherwise exemplary faithfulness of this church at Pergamon. That's why. Well, let's consider how that uh, came about, what they should do about it, and then what that means for us here in Wheaton, not Pergamon. First then, why and how had the satanic power at work in Pergamon managed to begin this process of unnervingly subverting the otherwise exemplary faithfulness of the church in Pergamon? Well, to begin with, let's remind ourselves how faithful they were. So look down with me at verse 13. I know where you dwell, Jesus says. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This was a good church. I mean, they've been faithful, they lived in the same location as Satan. Where he had his throne. They had had one of their number killed for their faithfulness. The word actually here used for witness is the same as our word martyr, showing how the idea of witness was gradually related to the idea of dying for Jesus, as some today are faced with that kind of witness. And yet they had remained true to Jesus' name. They had been faithful unto death, that phrase that uh, we looked at uh, last week uh, in the letter to Smyrna. And for this, Smyrna had been commended without any hesitation. And yet here in Pergamum, Jesus carries on. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. And these things, though few, are serious. They had engaged in idol worship and sexual immorality. How had this church, faithful unto death even, become so compromised? Well, it seems clear when you begin to really study this letter that there was a simple reason. And that was they had uh, failed to exercise any kind of discipline. They had simply failed to expel those from among them who were teaching blatant heresy. Now, understand me, their teaching was not subtle. It was quite wrong, and yet it had become tolerated. 
You see, it seems that Pergamon's problem was the very opposite of uh, the difficulty at Ephesus. Uh, There in Ephesus, the church had expelled false teachers, but had developed a somewhat love-less atmosphere. Whereas here, at the opposite extreme, the church had become so nice (laughs) that now it was failing to be strong. And so Jesus says that they had some there, and there were those who hold to among them and in their midst, and they become too, as we might say, politically correct to do anything about it. Now, this Balaam figure, you see, was a sort of archetypal false teacher. He uh, sort of conjures up this image of a sort of attractive and inspired guru who nonetheless subverted the Israelites with idolatry and immorality. And so oftentimes, uh, false teachers in the New Testament are called or referred to as Balaams. Uh, You can see this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, and Jude 11. And you see, a Balaam-like teacher is one who sounds good. You know, this sort of inspired guru. He sounds good, but he encourages bad living. Honey drips off his lips. But what he teaches is morally reprehensible. And when you look down through church history and you look across the world, it is surprising how often churches fall prey to Balaam's. Let us beware of any teacher who claims inspiration but encourages us to live in a way that is contrary to God's Word. The Nicolaitans uh, then were uh, similar. And of course there are various speculations that I mentioned in a couple of weeks previous uh, about these Nicolaitans who crop up in these letters a number of times about their origin and the content of their teaching, and we simply do not know. But what we do know is that they were also, it says here, like the Balaams, and I think also in their encouragement of loose living. They're classed together as having the same functional results. Now, you see, these teachings were not subtle traps for the intellectually challenged. They were not complex errors that you'd have to have a graduate degree from Wheaton College to spot. No, they were obvious errors, and their attractiveness lay in their willingness to countenance sin. Technically, this kind of thing is called antinomianism. That's what theologians put the various sorts and kinds of it under that heading. It is, what is that? It's the sort of teaching that says something like this. Uh, now you're a Christian... It really doesn't matter how you live. Whatever you do, you'll get to heaven. And the logic behind that sort of statement is this. Haven't you been saved by grace? Are not all your righteous acts even filthy rags in God's sight? 
then why can you not sin more that grace may abound? A good quotation for this teaching. Of course, the message of the gospel is always open to this misunderstanding or misuse. And the Apostle Paul, I think, realized this. The gospel of free grace is so radical that it is probably true that we do not really understand that gospel of free grace until we are rocked back on our heels and we ask ourselves the question, well, doesn't that mean that I can sin? But if we answer that question with yes, well, then we have become antinomian. The answer to that question is no. The gospel of grace means that now I do not want to sin because my heart has been changed. I'll do anything for him. He's my Lord and Master. I've been regenerated. I'm a new creation. I have different tastes and desires and affections. I I remember once in my own life having a conversation with a senior and respected church leader that in retrospect shocked me in relation to these thoughts that we're considering together this morning. At the time when I first had this conversation, it didn't really um, you know, I didn't really think much of it, to be honest. Perhaps, perhaps, but perhaps now you've looked at this passage. If that kind of conversation that I'm now going to describe happens to you, you will be more ready for it than I was. Uh, he and I were talking about how some Christians from another church were drifting over to his church, you see. And he said, oh, it's because they say, oh, that pastor... He's soft on sin. And the senior leader said it so winsomely and charmingly that I thought, how compassionate of him. But in retrospect, now I realize I should have said what Jesus says here, which is repent. The gospel is not soft on sin. Sin nailed Jesus to the cross. It's the old mistake that Jonathan Edwards elucidated so helpfully. We should not think of Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing him now, though I'm sure I could quote many of his sermons by heart. But we should not think of Jesus as the Savior of our sins. So that now we can carry on sinning, but instead the Savior from our sins. So that now we can live holy and thus joyful lives. It's a moral cancer. And now I'm free from it. I no longer want it. First then, why? Why have they got into this situation, this good and great church in this great city? Well, it was lack of discipline. They've become too nice to do anything about it. Second, well then, what should they do about it now? Well, look down with me at verse 16. 
my friends. Look there. You see what Jesus says? Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, there are two parts to the solution that Jesus offers this church at Pergamum. Those two parts are these. There needs to be a change of heart and there needs to be a renewed word ministry. So first to repent means to have a change of heart. And so the illustration of this is if I take a train to Chicago but suddenly decide that really I want to be in Geneva, what do I do? I get off at the next station, I change tracks, and I go back on a train going the other way to Geneva. That is repentance. To repent is not to do penance. That was a bad translation, the word fostered by the Latin translation of the Greek. Uh, Repenting is not beating yourself with whips and chains, either physically or emotionally. That's not repentance. In fact, such moroseness, sort of feeling bad, that, 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 that is not necessarily repentance at all. Even if it's extreme moroseness, I can cry, I can feel really bad, but if I do nothing about it, I still haven't repented. I rather like this uh, illustration uh, of this, which comes from Bono, who's the lead singer of U2, that perhaps you know that, and... uh, uh, Bono uh, was once, uh, once described in his mind, obviously he's a rock singer, in his mind the difference between pop music and rock music, you see. And uh, Bono said that pop music tells you that everything is okay. You know, that, that's the feeling of it, you know, everything is okay. <laughs> it's kind of happy, isn't it? That's pop music. That's why they get to the top, they say, yeah, everything's okay, you know. And Bono said, rock music, on the other hand, tells you it is not, but you can do something about it. Well, if that is the case, and, you know, I don't know whether it is or not, but if it is, repentance is rock music. It is saying it's not okay Change. Repentance. But also renewed word ministry. Now, of course, that's what Jesus means by saying that he will come with the sword of his mouth. It's a sword, but it's a sword that comes from his mouth. That is speech, his word And so the point is, if Jesus' call to repentance is not heeded, then he will engage in battle with his adversaries by means of renewed word ministry. And so he says, he will come to them. Well, of course, God is omnipresent, so he's already there. But he will come to them. That is in renewed power and presence. There will be an intensity of his presence in the church. He will come to them. 
He will not fight against the church. He will fight against them. That is, those who are hurting the church. Well, that was the situation, my friends, in Pergamum and Jesus' solution to it. What would that mean for a church today, uh, whether here in Wheaton or elsewhere? Well, I, I think in some respects it probably means exactly the same as it did for the Christians at Pergamum. Look at verse 17 then. This is a wonderful promise. Uh, Jesus says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what is Jesus saying there? Well, Jesus is saying in summary that overcoming by repenting and listening to Jesus' voice in his word results in blessing. It's a good thing, generically blessing. But the particular blessing is here described in this imagery of two things, hidden manna and a white stone. What are those? Well, the hidden manna is an allusion, a reference to the special bread from heaven that the Israelites received in the wilderness. And you see, part of the messianic expectation that when the Messiah came was that when he did arrive, he would feed his people with this manna. And Jesus is now reminding them that this is the case. If they stay faithful to him, he will continue to feed them, not with physical bread from heaven, but the spiritual bread. That is, it is hidden to all but the eyes of faith. So we as Christians are spiritually nourished by Jesus himself upon the bread of heaven as we open up the Bible and listen to the word. What about the white stone? Well, that's another allusion, a reference, but this time an allusion with multiple references, multiple reference points, if you like. And actually, if you get to know the book of Revelation and John's style here, his literary technique, this is a common approach that he uses. He often writes in such a way as to evoke, if you like, a whole rainbow of different vivid colors in the reader's mind's eye. Now, these multiple analogous references, though, the whole rainbow, that doesn't mean that there are many different possible meanings to his imagery. He has a single meaning, What he's doing is he's seeking to underline and evoke that meaning more powerfully by drawing upon different images. Some of those images will speak more powerfully to some people and others more powerfully uh, to others. Well, then this white stone, you see, it would have evoked several different images for the Pergamons. These small pebble-like stones were used as a way of casting a vote. They were also used as tickets to banquets. Here they are white to indicate purity, 
And they have a name known only to those who receive it to indicate intimacy, a personal pet name from Jesus to you. In other words, this is an intimate invitation from Jesus to you. Overcoming then for Pergamum, as for all Christians in all places and at all times, means receiving a constant supply of spiritual sustenance from Jesus to meet our daily needs, the hidden manna. It also means an intimacy of communion with Jesus, the the white stone, both of which entail this present blessing, but also future entrance to the eternal joy. If you like, we have Jesus' vote and a ticket of entrance to the banquet of heaven. While the Word of God always bites or cuts, it is a sword, not a damp fish. How then does it cut for us here this morning? While you and I, all of us, at different times in our lives, need to be humble enough to be willing to be morally corrected, even disciplined. Now, your temptation may not be sexual immorality or idol worship. Unlike the Pergamons, we probably do not have to deal with the command to worship an emperor and be tempted to feel that maybe we can do that with our fingers crossed behind our backs and not really meaning it, as it were. But perhaps there are other moral compromises that you find tempting. One report suggested that between 5 and 10% of students have lifted a term paper from the internet to submit as their own work. Of course, the internet has other traps for the unwary. Yes, even the scrupulously religious, a church which had been so faithful to have antipaths in its midst, Even the scrupulously religious can become undisciplined, too soft on their sin, whatever that might be. Perhaps it's gossip. We all know it's wrong to talk about someone behind uh, their back, but maybe we find an excuse in some religious teaching to do it. But then, on the other hand, also, all of us need to rejoice and seek to multiply a renewed word ministry. Now, of course, many churches open their Bibles. There may be a few these days where even that is quite rare. But while many churches open their Bibles, few study them, if we're honest. So if you have any influence, you want to encourage your pastors to give themselves to understanding and proclaiming the Bible. Why is that? Well, false teaching will be best prevented by advancing true teaching. 
Invite to speak at events and conferences. Encourage the ministries of those who do not just simply sound exciting and motivating, though there's no virtue in being boring either, of course, but but don't just simply sound exciting and motivating, but who clearly and faithfully proclaim the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Every now and then I hear of people who have gone to evangelical churches all their life but have never had a passage of the Bible explained and applied from the pulpit. Bible preaching is teaching the Bible, explaining it and applying it. That is how we hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well done, he said to Smyrna without exception. Well done to Pergamum. But repent and listen. Let's pray together. Perhaps there is something this morning that you need to repent from. Perhaps you are on the journey in one direction in your life and you're not sure you like it or even want it anymore. but you're still traveling in the same direction. Or perhaps it's time to actually change. To not listen, as it were, to the music of your life. The, just saying, it's okay, it's okay. But actually by the Spirit listening to His Word, do something about it. Change. In the quiet now, would you do that? Would you repent? Perhaps, on the other hand, uh, it's time for us just to rejoice in renewed word ministry and to multiply that. And and listen then to Jesus with his promise for those who overcome the intimacy of communion with him. The hidden manna, white stone with your name written on it, and to rejoice in that truth this morning. To those who overcome, to those who repent.
Lord, we do pray that uh, we would repent and listen. We pray that we would be a church that delights in your word. We pray that uh, we will be a church that's quick to love and quick to speak the truth in love, to not fall into the trap of Ephesus where we become so clear and so hardworking we lose our first love, but neither also to fall into the trap of Pergamum where we become too nice to ever gainsay a false teaching that leads to moral corruption. Help us to have the balance that your word describes and we pray for the power of your spirit to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen.